I'm Olga Stella, the Executive Director of Design Corps Detroit. Welcome to the Detroit City of Design podcast. As stewards of Detroit's UNESCO City of Design designation, we hope to take you through a journey to become more inspired and aware of how design can be used to create the conditions for better quality of life and economic opportunity for all. I'm here with Dan Kincaid, principal and co-leader of Smith Group's Urban Design Practice. Dan played a leadership role in developing and implementing the 2012 Detroit Future City Strategic Framework, a shared vision for Detroit's future. The framework suggested strategies on how to foster job growth and economic prosperity, ensure vibrant neighborhoods, build cost-effective infrastructure, and maintain high community engagement. Well, thanks, Dan, so much for joining us today on the Detroit City of Design podcast. It's great to have you. I know we've worked together for many years. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Well, so I wanted to maybe set a little bit of context for our listeners. One of the things that you worked on in your career was the Detroit Future City Framework Plan, which was published about seven years ago, but the work started on it almost nine years ago. I just wanted to get your perspective about the work on that plan and how things have changed in the last seven years since the framework was published and the city has emerged out of bankruptcy and and all the changes that have been taking place. My daughter was born in 2011, really in the midst of the planning process itself. And, you know, it was a moment where it was more existential. We were kind of really trying to figure out where the city could go and what it would mean for all of us, but, but particularly our children, right? And it was a unique challenge for those of less mean. And I had always kind of appreciated that point. And if I reflect back on that time to your question, I recall some really key moments, galvanizing events, large engagement, town halls, where you could really sense the perceived and real imminent peril of the city and everybody that was present, you know, every resident and business owner. And you could feel that there was a bit of despair, but over time there was also this growing, really powerful conviction that we, collectively, all of us, whoever we might be, citizens, political leaders, business leaders, we can do this. We can transform our city into what we've always wanted it to be. And I recall getting a sense of that throughout the process and having it grow, right? And it's growing within the community and we're sharing really powerful and sometimes devastating information with people. But everyone was really undaunted and wanted to advance the transformation as they went through. And the capacity that was being built at the time also for folks to equip themselves to move things forward was really amazing. And as one reflection point for you, I recall analyses that we were looking at that was suggesting at that time, for every dollar the city brought in, I think we were paying out roughly 43 cents in debt service alone. Yeah, I mean, every day feels one step forward and one step better. And you know, I mean, it's still a city that has many challenges, but I think, Dan, you point out the resiliency and the determination of its residents, and not just residents of means, but residents who have been here for many years, residents all across the city. And that is something I think that really is a defining feature of Detroit, is that determination and resiliency of the longtime residents here. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you think about the work, I mean, I am pretty familiar with the Detroit Future City <laughs> Framework Plan myself, but there were a couple 
major themes in the framework around the ways that we could use land to clean our air and water, about ways city systems could be redeployed to support the greatest number of residents and improve efficiencies and just some other thoughts around how to build employment centers and neighborhoods and that kind of thing. As you think about where we sit today, which of those themes and ideas continue to hold relevance or should we be really continuing to push down on? Great question. I think for me, it may not be about one or two or three specific things that have happened, but more about the methodology itself. And I think Mm -hmm. you started to get at it in your question, which is that Detroit's recovery isn't coming about because of some massive deployment of capital or some sweeping policy that moved through the city. It happened because everybody involved in large, medium, and small ways, simply flipped liabilities on their heads and they became assets. And you hit this. So we'd always fretted for so long about all of this vacant property. And certainly from a cost to serve perspective from the city, these spaces literally cost money. They were hemorrhaging money to serve places with big systems where no one lived or certainly no one was paying taxes to support that. But instead, what we've discovered actually is that our ability to reutilize that space for a range of things, to manage stormwater, to grow food, to set up new places for creative enterprise. I mean, these are the kind of transformative ingredients that we've kind of sought out for so long, and they happen to be right in front of us. And it's happened by people just repositioning what's in front of them and seeing the potential future in each one of those things. And I think it's also the kind of bootstrapping stewardship that folks here are so used to doing now. I mean, we have virtually generations who've come up in that process that this isn't a place or a moment where people are going to do something for you, but you have to step in and do things for yourself. I don't put that out there in a kind of ultra conservative, kind of like neoliberal way. Like, you know, everybody better be bootstrapping out there. Right. But instead, it's more of a kind of self-sufficiency and that kind of individual authorship and how we can move the city forward so that you have an environment where people really have purchase in what's going on. And when you have that, you have people with conviction and commitment to see things through at a range of scales, which we feel the outcomes of every day. That kind of individual participation and driving the city's future, right? You're not relying just on government. You're not relying just on a big corporation, but neighborhood groups, black groups, community development, corporations, small businesses, What does that do to the look and feel of a city, from your view? Well, I think at one level, it provides a kind of pluralism here that you don't see in a lot of places. It's rather disaggregated and fractured and outlines kind of individual interests, whether that's by person or by family or by neighborhood. You have areas that have their own look and feel. And don't get me wrong, there are a lot of cities out there that have that as well. But I think we've perhaps just generally grown more conscious of our ability to shape our city in that way. And I think it also just provides a broader platform for authorship for folks to jump in and contribute and makes, uh, I think, makes people feel a bit more welcome to do those things. That urban development of various scales and types is not just under the mandate of some corporate elite group of developers out there, but instead it's tied to community development corporations, it's tied to block clubs, it's tied to individual schools. And I think this is really possible in a city like Detroit because of such a robust Q 
community development financial institution network where you have more kind of granular distributed means to share resources for folks to pick those up and move things forward. And I think that's really empowering for a city like Detroit that needs everybody growing together to push it ahead. You're an architect and have obviously worked in the the world of design in Detroit and other places. I know one of the questions that we often get is, you know, what is the opportunity for design to really make a difference in the revitalization of neighborhoods in redevelopment of a place like Detroit? What's your view of that? And what are the appropriate ways that design can play a role? And, and maybe what are the ways that the role might be a little overblown, if there are any? <laughs> yeah, that's another great question. But in some ways, I'm inclined to almost flip the question on its head a little bit or turn it around where, yeah, it's certainly about the opportunity for design to drive impact in Detroit. But I think in some ways, Detroit is actually providing the opportunity make design more relevant. It provides that space, that set of opportunities and needs and challenges, quite honestly, that allows design to play a much more meaningful, impactful role. You can feel it here. And quite honestly, you can feel it through the work that you all do, right, within Design Mm -hmm. Corps and the thinking about how design plays a role in commercial spaces, how it plays a role in small public spaces, I think it's being invested more and more in every part of our communities. And look, in high and low ways, right? This isn't all about kind of highbrow design. This is about a kind of consciousness of what it means to shape space, what it means to shape those spaces with materials that are meaningful to people that may be kind of recaptured from something that had failed before but is now moving in another direction, right? This kind of repurposing of so much. For me, in the work that I do, both as an architect and as a kind of community member, design here, the big opportunity is around adapting places, adapting spaces and structures. We demonstrate this kind of jujitsu model every day, right? That we're not just barreling down and bulldozing both literally and figuratively. We're thinking about how we work to take old rail lines, you've worked on these projects just like I have, and shaping them into amazing civic spaces or former industrial structures into dynamic places for creative enterprise that actually become the kind of genesis for new economic opportunity. And it becomes, I think, a very fertile space. The cost of entry to do things in Detroit remains, again, relatively low compared to other cities. It's offered a wider platform for authorship here, and one where you can, as an individual or as a small-scale neighborhood organization, have some kind of impact. And whether you call that inclusion in the process or some kind of broader democratic design process, I'm not sure where that where we stand in that, but it certainly is a process that people can get into and can move things along in their own way. And it's also, I think, a place where we're seeing different development models come together, where I think the very demand to shape development deals that are associated with design, for instance, has shaped arrangements that have spurred different types of collections of use in individual structures or reutilizing structures that people in the past would have just set aside. And so that very imperative of means and cost have driven us to be far more innovative than maybe some of our other peer cities. So that's, for me, it's super exciting from the design side. 
And so when you look at other cities that you're working with, you're the co-director of Smith Group's urban design practice. How does Detroit compare to these other places? Obviously here in Detroit, and especially at, at my organization, we're champions for Detroit design and for what's happening here. But it's always great to hear from our friends, um, you know, their perspectives about the way that Detroit might be similar or different to other American cities or other places in the world where your firm is working. I do help to lead our national urban design practice, and I, I co-lead that with another gentleman, Michael Johnson. And we work in many cities across the United States, and we work internationally. And I would say that what's kind of amazing is in my previous life, having worked in New York and worked in a lot of international development, the ability to walk into a room in a foreign city and to sit down and start talking to folks as you're from New York, the doors immediately open and and people's minds open and things just kind of move forward. Uh, Initially, trying to do some of those things based in Detroit to go other places, certainly there had been a pause or a question about relevance or even capacity, right? That's gone. That is absolutely gone. I think now when we meet with folks, they are just so excited. They want to understand how we've done what we've done in Detroit and not in some kind of hyperbolic, crazy way, you know, in a real meaningful way. They'll often have questions about, well, how did this happen? Did policy do this or was there investment that guided that? I mean, they'll be very explicit in their questions. And it tells me that people are really paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an important thing, too, that Detroit's recovery in itself is not just about Detroit, but it's about demonstrating to others a new set of strategies and tactics to change things around. To your question more directly, I think what we're seeing broadly in the national and global market are many reflections of different facets of who we are in Detroit, too, right? We are a place of major global corporate power. We're also the space of really challenging poverty. We're the space of emerging, leading creative enterprise that isn't seen in a lot of places. You name it. There's a lot of those things here, and they're emulated in other places, and We're seeing where nationally in places like Las Vegas right now, where we're leading with the city a master plan there, they're shaping an entire arts district that had been kind of dormant, low-lying industrial space for a while. And it's really kind of, its recovery is germinating in a way that reminds me very much of Detroit. Folks, individuals have done this. There's really been no large programs set out Mm -hmm. to guide this. People have done it themselves. So when we talk with people there, we're always reflecting on the things that have happened in Detroit and what's happening there. Or when we start to do more of our international work, you see parts of this represented in things that are changing. For instance, some of the strategic stuff that we've done graphically outlining what's happening in urbanized places, for instance, in South Asia, we're seeing how some of those massive spikes in population density are facing challenges that are oddly very similar to those that we face as a city that was depopulating. Oh, interesting. Um, Absolutely, where you have these really amazing constraints on capital and you have big, big demands and stresses, albeit different types, but stresses on infrastructure. You have social challenges that are present. We recently did some work with the U.S. State Department, and I was in Ukraine working Because of the work that we've done in Detroit and certainly some things that I've been able to contribute to about industrial adaptive reuse Mm -hmm. uh, nationally, they wanted us to go over there and talk to leaders in three major cities in Ukraine about how they could begin to reposition their former industrial assets, which are quite large, 
and which had been shuttered coming out from under the Soviet Union, right, as they exited. And we know from global media right now that that is still a big tension point. Right. But to go over there, I mean, they certainly wanted to hear me talk about some of the work we do nationally and globally. They wanted to hear those trends and understand where they were situated in it. But they really also wanted to hear about Detroit's story and how it began to redefine these liabilities as assets and what that took at kind of high political levels and kind of low community levels. And to see where they are now at the kind of really early stage of this is kind of exciting. And I think it's, in a way, a place to watch in the future. And we may see more from those places. Well, you've done quite a bit of work with the German Marshall Fund. Can you tell us a little bit more about the similarities between the Rhine region and Southeast Michigan? This is a large former industrial district that is about 5 million people. And its size and that total population, by the way, is almost exactly the same as Mm -hmm. the metropolitan Detroit, Southeast Michigan region. Like, exactly. Right. And now Detroit is starting to drive a similar set of recovery strategies to go to the same ends. And, And to see the relationship between those two things is really interesting. I think where places like Germany and parts of Western Europe have an advantage is there's a real big state play. Right. And they can really influence the way you reutilize physical assets and how funding flows that, quite honestly, we don't see in the United States broadly, and we just don't see here. So I think there's still many things like those that we can learn from other places, because without those kinds of sweeping changes where you have policy and regulatory change around a large structural economic shift, we're not going to see, I think, the complete fulfillment of a lot of what we talk about. And from a design perspective, I recognize that the role we can play is the ability to kind of manifest that in physical terms and to think about it in a way maybe that we haven't in the past. When you're talking to government officials or developers, community organizations in these other places, and they, they're asking you for these lessons and learnings from Detroit, especially around you know, how you flip a liability into an opportunity, What are the two or three things that are maybe the key takeaways that you share? They're different. They tend to be different depending on the the audience there. But I think the common one that's there is often when you're talking to state actors, too, to convince them that this isn't a top-down play, that this isn't going to come if they lay out a dictum that says thou shall or the central government will allow. You have to actually boil it up from the bottom. And I think that's a real difference because I think those state actors generally who have deep capacity understand that and they can get things in a position where they can lie in a more granular way and bubble it up. But in some cases, it is a challenge. But I think that's a really big one is to not essentially snuff out the innovation from the top, but actually to provide really more granular means to build it up. And that's often kind of small scale funding. It's it's loosening sometimes of certain kind of regulation that's present. So those are big factors. I think the other one is understanding that it goes hand in hand with the first. A broader arrangement of authorship here really does matter, that people need to see themselves in their own work, whether they're a cafe owner, a business owner, or someone who runs scooters in a city, that, that they can start to see a place that somehow reflects who they are a bit more and where they can see their own peers advancing things in place. That matters a lot. And then one of the the other ones, I guess the last one I would mention, is that you're mindful of the real imperative to provide hope so that 
individuals can think beyond themselves, mm-hmm. where they can think about their children and they can think about the place that they want to leave behind for them. Because if they can get people to be thinking in those terms, they can move mountains because then you have real motivation and you have very reasonable expectations on return, which means I know that this is going to be a generational effort. I, as an individual, may not see the fruits of my labor, but hopefully my children and their children will. And that is both, I think, a very real way to understand the the state that you're in, but also a very powerful way to understand the impact of everything you do. And so that's something that we do talk about with people quite often. And so just as we start to wrap up the conversation, what does that look like in practice? You know, you've been on both sides, the for-profit, you know, architectural practice side and in the nonprofit space. When you're working with residents, with people who maybe are experiencing really extreme challenges in their economic situation, their housing, their mobility, how do architects, how do designers bridge that gap and work with communities in a way that does instill that hope or helps people really be active participants in projects? I can tell you, honestly, it's a challenge because for many of us as designers, architects, professionals in this world, we live in environments and work in environments where, whether in small, medium, or large ways, we're a business and we need to generate revenue. Many people we work with, we call them clients. Right. Clients pay, right. You know, and, right. And they pay the bills, <laughs> keep the, the lights bills. on. Yeah. And I don't want to be poetic here about an altruism that may not be as robust as one might think it is. I would say this, though, that as we do those things, as we go day by day and do the work that we do as a business, I think what many of us do, again, in large and small ways, is then turn to the side a little bit and then think about what you can do with others, with individuals who may not have as much from a kind of business case to contribute, but whose lives can be powerfully improved. And then you go and deploy your energies there and you work with folks. And I think for me, at least, the way that that really comes through is when, particularly in the work that we do, for me as an architect and as an urban designer, and particularly with urban design, where we're usually working very much upstream in the project, in the process, right? This is way before a lot of the capital projects really take shape. And you're working that kind of shape vision and direction. Those are both high impact and low cost moments for folks to have authorship and uh, mm-hmm. a real sense of ownership in what's going on. That you don't have to reach that far. And it means that everything that flows downstream from there carries their DNA in it. Right. And I think if we're mindful of that, that can do a lot. I think what we want to be careful of is just kind of thinking somehow that we can tie all these things together and deliver it in all the same ways with all these very different audiences, which I think is disingenuous. And I think we need to think a little bit differently about it. But I'm very excited about that ability to move upstream in the process, to have more authorship, more purchase in there, and to bring people uh, with us. I think a really inspiring way to end this conversation and just to think about as we're planning projects or we're kind of organizing projects that the investment at the front end, I mean, this is the the whole value of design, right, is that if you invest in the front end, you get the right kind of strategy at the right kind of framework. It's not just some pretty finishes at the end and, you know, kind of slapping it together to make it look good. That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for your time today and for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you, Olga. 
This has been the Detroit City of Design podcast. If you like what you've just heard, feel free to share this episode on social media, via email, or any other means. For more info on Design Corps Detroit, visit designcore.org and search the hashtag DesignCoreDET. That's Design, C-O-R-E-D-E-T. Keep up with the show by subscribing for free in your favorite podcast app. Just search Detroit City of Design. And we hope you'll join us for Detroit Month of Design this September. The Detroit City of Design podcast is produced by Olu and Company, edited by Jag in Detroit and recorded at Motor City Women's Studios. Music by Diamondstein, courtesy of Assemble Sound. Special thanks to Jessica Maloof of Design Core Detroit. This podcast is a product of Design Core Detroit, part of the College for Creative Studies.